1: Welcome back to New Books in American Studies. I'm the co-host of the channel, Lillian Barger. Today, my conversation is with James Alexander Dunn, Assistant Professor of History at Princeton University. His book, Dangerous Neighbors, Making the Haitian Revolution in Early America, published by the University of Pennsylvania Press, is a topic of this show. Dunn provides a detailed examination of how the Haitian Revolution shaped Americans' view of their own revolution their relations with both England and France, and left an imprint on the domestic ideological battles between Federalists and Republicans. Philadelphia, a center for anti-slavery activity and a stage for revolutionary ideas, was actively engaged in trade with the French colony of St. Domingue. Newspapers, letters, and eyewitness accounts from merchant ships provide Dunn with a window into how the Haitian Revolution influenced domestic politics. Attempting to understand the meaning of the French Revolution, people and ideas from St. Domingue flooded the city, dividing citizens over the meaning of rebellion, revolution, freedom, and slavery. Dunn has deciphered complex events and shown how Haiti became a symbol of all that was right and wrong in the revolutionary Atlantic. Here is my conversation with James Alexander Dunn. Now, let me introduce you to the author, James Alexander Dunn. Alec, welcome to the show.
0: Thank you so much for having me.
1: And thank you for sharing your thoughts with our audience. Before we get into the book, tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, and how you came to write Dangerous Neighbors.
0: Well, I'm a historian. I I teach at Princeton University. I'm a historian of early America, um, which, uh, as your listeners probably know, uh, these days tends to mean that you don't just study uh, a single place but you think about a, a wider space um, typically uh, spreading out across waters and lands uh, I tend to spread out uh, from west to east thinking about the Caribbean and, and the Atlantic littoral as a space um, even though I do study uh, in temporarily the 18th century mostly uh, and therefore I do think about nation-states and, and, and specifically the United States but I tend to think about it in terms of a, a wider Atlantic context um, And that's certainly related to how I came to the topic of of this book. Um, I found it quite uh, difficult to think about the American Revolution without immediately beginning to think about the Haitian Revolution.
1: Now, your book is extremely uh, complicated, I would say. Not because your arguments are particularly complicated, but the events in your, that you deal with between uh, 1790 roughly and 1884, there's a lot of events that are happening. Uh, it's not just the Haitian Revolution. We think of it as a moment in time, one thing that happened, but lots of things happened leading up to it. And so there's, and there's a lot of players. So a lot of people. There's the French, there's the Americans, there's the Haitians, there's the uh, slaves, the free, the colored, the white colonials. There's a lot of people. There's the merchant ships and the news editors. And, uh, so, so talk to us a little bit for the audience. The key events. That you're dealing with in this sort of roughly 14, 15 years,
0: right? And well, I'd start off by saying that your observation is exactly the point. Um, this thing that we as moderns, uh, modern audiences, uh, tend to think of in, in one fell swoop, the Haitian Revolution, was a series of very complex uh, current events. Of course, over this fourteen nearly fifteen year period of time, and and you know my, my starting point. My analysis is really that uh, Americans, and uh, among many other audiences, were watching those events, and they were watching them in real time, uh, and they were interested in them. Uh, that was a sort of, you know, sine qua non of what I was uh, trying to do in the book. Uh, if they hadn't been interested in them, uh, there wouldn't have been any point uh, of charting these events. Um, so you asked what what the principal moments were.
1: Yeah, and I think I think I would start probably with the French Revolution. That first. Uh, right. And how it affected both Americans in Philadelphia, because you do focus on what was going on in Philadelphia, and we'll talk about why Philadelphia. Sure. But how did the how was the French Revolution received in Philadelphia or in the Americas? And how was it? What happened to to what we now call Haiti, uh, that mm-hmm. area of the West Indies? Yeah. How the French Revolution affected that island?
0: Well, Americans were uh, of all uh, start, uh, sort of walks of life really fascinated in the developments in paris that we now understand and, and people at, at the time too i will hasten to add understood as a french revolution uh that was sort of a you know a, something they accepted as a revolutionary set of events right away um there's you know there's a there's a lot of reasons for that interest um the, the, the alliance with france which had you know been an important part of american independence uh but also the fact that the 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 French revolutionaries themselves, but but also Americans looking there, saw lots of connections between what had happened and, and what was still unfolding in the American polity and this, this new and, and momentous set of events that was uh, taking place in Paris, uh, especially after 1792 when the French declare themselves to be a republic Americans can look there and say this is, you know, some sort of sister republic. Um and indeed the the French revolutionary uh, ideology for a time there is really rooted in this expansionist notion that um republics everywhere are are engaged in a battle against monarchy everywhere. Uh and it's and it's a global struggle uh, and and there's a you know there's quite real political ramifications for that belief on the part of the french and and there's a, a good degree of acceptance of that idea among certain americans who say yes we should be engaged in in battling the british who are still kind of uh you know snipping at our heels a bit in, in um you know in, in north america or the spanish as well um so all that that's kind of the environment in which uh, these events in saint Domingue begin to unfold that's the, the french colonial name for the place that eventually becomes called haiti um, and Americans quite reasonably uh, look at these events and see them as what they call the French Revolution in St. Domingo. It's always St. Domingo, not Saint-Domingue in American mouths, as far as I can make out. Um, initially, what they're seeing, is, say circa late 1789 into 1790, is uh, a variety of different sorts of uh, fights over the French Revolution among various groups in Saint-Domingue. This is principally a struggle between white factions uh folks who are looking at the events in Paris and saying, hmm, maybe this is something that we can use or, or, or will signal a, a shift in our relationship as a colony to that metropolitan center. Uh, indeed, they will they look quite consciously to their neighbors to the north, to the United States, and say maybe this is the beginning of a an American Revolution, uh quote unquote, uh, amongst uh, their interests. Um they hope that maybe there'll be a new regime of freer trade in the new uh French Polity, uh, where they can do more business with uh, American merchants, quite honestly. Um, maybe means independence, some of them. As the French Revolution takes various turns, there is a group of them who emerge as kind of royalists, who don't want uh, to follow the, the French path anymore. But at the same time, there are French metropolitan officials in the island, uh, army officers, governors, intendants, these sorts of things, who don't want their authority to be jeopardized. So uh, we have factional sort of squabbling going on. Um, uh, in, in this early stage, crucially, uh, there's a there's a significant body of people known as the gens de couleur, the people of color, uh, free people who um, are often um, significant small property owners, uh, so oftentimes slave owners, uh, but are of mixed race, uh, who hope that that same struggle, especially when it gets attached to um, Ideas like liberty, equality, and fraternity and the rights of man will mean a reversal of the increasing discrimination they're facing in Domingan society. So that's going on. Did you want to jump in? Well, yeah, yeah. I, w-
1: I wanted to ask you a question about um, how much of the population on St. Domingo is uh, are slaves at this
0: point? The vast majority, something it, like 500,000.
1: But is it like 90% of the population?
0: It's probably uh, close to 95%, I okay. would say. There's, there's something like... 25 or so thousand white colonists, around 30,000 um, uh, free people of color, and then there's you know this massive majority of African and Afro-Creole um, uh, people uh, who are these enslaved population.
1: Okay, so what is the relationship at this point? Now, we talked we talked about a little bit about America's their response to the French Revolution. Now when the Reign of Terror comes, of course, people are backing away and going maybe this French Revolution really isn't like our revolution and maybe mm-hmm. we don't really like it that much. So there's Americans are not unified in what they think about the French Revolution, especially Absolutely. when it starts to turn violent and there's a lot of the king's right. executed and all this.
0: That is a, that is a signal moment right there. Right. Absolutely. Now, and, 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 sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. Well, I would say that that part of that reaction to the violence of the French Revolution, to the, uh, you know, the the, the political radicalism that's involved in some of those shifts that you just mentioned in France itself, uh, is filtered through this news from the the most important French colony, which is Saint-Domingue. This is a place that is is absolutely central to the French economy. It is the most successful plantation colony the world has ever seen. Uh, Its exports, for example, are something like triple that of all the British West Indian Islands combined. It is an absolute economic powerhouse. Um, so as those factional struggles are taking place and then the, the, the famous insurrections, these, these series of insurrections that, that begin in August 1791 across the northern part of the colony then also begin thereafter in the western part of the colony in a different way in the southern part of the colony. Americans have a lot of stimuli by which to judge this French place and what some of them could see as the, the male effects of French revolutionary you know, directions or, or ideas. Um, that becomes an even more, um, a possible reaction when, uh, you know, there, there are some really interesting French revolutionary moments that take place in this, in this Caribbean context. Um, at one point, uh, metropolitan officials doing, trying to do anything they can to try to preserve or reestablish some sort of order, um, give rights, uh, limited degree of rights to, um, People of color, you know, sort of admitting them to be citizens, uh, a, a right that is then sanctioned in Paris. That's one sort of move that Americans look at and are interested in. Uh, but even more astounding, and this is something I think even French revolutionary historians are are, are still coming to it and thinking about more and more. Uh, again, scrabbling for to maintain their control. And, and, and in the face of these factional fights and this slave violence, uh, revolutionary French officials declare any... Uh, enslaved or, or person who's fighting, uh, in, as an insurgent against them, uh, who will join the French side to be free. That takes place in June of 1793. And that move, a couple months later, February 1794, is sanctioned in Paris and expanded to the entire French Empire. So, in one fell swoop, after a pretty minimal debate as far as I can make out, there is no more slavery in the French possessions uh, on the, on the earth. It's not exactly true, right? Because some places resist it, but, um, Nevertheless, thereafter, uh, you know, without any sort of compensation, without any provision for their removal from the polity, uh, as, as many other emancipatory regimes uh, allow, uh, these people, these free people, are, can become something like a French citizen. They certainly can become fighters in French armies, which is what the French armies really need in the West Indies so far away. So that's a pretty mo- big moment. And Americans look at that in the same context they do at the terror and say, whoa, this is interesting. Most are against it, some are for it, uh, but they're all interested in it.
1: Okay, before the the, the, the revolutionary government in France or Paris uh, declares uh, slaves free if they join the revolutionary cause, uh, there were a bunch of mini-rebellions, insurrections, and who's fighting who here? This is where it got really muddled. You've got the colonials... Uh, white colonials, you've got colored people, you've got slaves. Are slaves involved also in that before they're declared emancipated? And wh- yeah. who are they fighting with? Are they fighting with? The-
0: this is a great question. It's really important. Yeah. I mean, uh, th- this is where, you know, scholars uh, among myself, uh, others among me, uh, study, you know, what insurrectionary slaves are fighting for and, and how they're related to other non-enslaved population struggles in lots of different ways and i think the best answer is that different slaves rebelled for different specific reasons some would have be rebelling uh, you know think thinking that say the the spanish monarch uh, was a, a safer route to some sort of um alleviation or or, or removal uh, of slavery for them others were armed by the whites or the free coloreds the gens de couleur in their own squabbles uh, but then even those may have taken those arms and done things differently than their putative sort of uh, you know allies might have wanted uh, i think the safest thing to say is that you know whenever a, a group of people who are um enslaved are, are able to mobilize themselves in significant numbers and 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 to fight against that slavery violently uh, they are acting to reverse some particular aspect of their enslavement and and, and maybe some general aspect of their enslavement um, and, and are risking their all to to, to at that effort right um, whether any of them or, or are trying to overturn slavery everywhere or even all over an entire colony, I think that's, that's a different kind of question. At some level, yes, there are some people saying, we want slavery to no longer exist in this colony. Um, there are examples uh, that suggest that. Um, some of the enslaved insurgent leaders, rather, uh, you know, decide they've gotten enough. They've secured control of different portions of the colony and so they want to treat with various officials and, and maybe say, yeah, yeah, I'll be free and my, my lieutenants will be free and my, my, my army will have a free day a week, but we'll go back to the plantations. In many t- cases, uh, those leaders are not followed. Uh, and in fact, the insurgents, the wider body of insurgents say, no, no, that, uh, that's not significant enough a change. Um, So, too, even the French decree of emancipation doesn't bring all slaves to the French side or all at once. Uh, Some slaves who are in arms or or maybe who have simply escaped slavery around them uh, are able to say, I've already got a degree of freedom uh, already. I don't need a French sort of letter to to explain to me that I'm now free.
1: And and Uh, this is interesting because it's the Americans in Philadelphia are watching this and they're trying to decide whether these uh, slaves are rebelling. Uh, what, is the, what is the meaning of the rebellion? Are they right. just are they just protesting against their immediate particular circumstances? You know, maybe they're not mm-hmm. getting enough food, or they're being mistreated, or are they really actually fighting for liberty, which is right. a much bigger thing, which is what right. you're talking about?
0: Exactly, exactly. And, and so, as such, that question filters right into ongoing questions and questions that are really bubbling up quite. Uh, aggressively at this particular moment, beginning in the American Revolutionary context, but on and through the 1780s and into this period in the 1790s, among people in general who are questioning, uh, you know, slavery at a certain level itself, but also the meaning of slave violence. In other words, some folks will look at slave violence and say, well, this is proof that slavery is necessary in a certain way, because it, it takes these naturally ferocious people and controls the threat that they bring in addition to providing labor that makes, you know, wealth and such. But others, uh, drawing on, you know, Christian ideas, evangelical Christian ideas as well, um, but also the sort of revolutionary era, um, ideas about republicanism and, and, uh, and other ideolo- ideological components, uh, say, no, these are, uh, these are men. And men, when they experience, they're humans, uh, when they experience tyranny, uh, rebel, naturally. It is a natural reaction. To be violent, in other words, when you when you confront this tyranny, um, and and that duality, the, the the fact that there's different ways of understanding this violence allows Americans observing to make it serve different ends in their own political context. Um, to make it say an expression of a more sort of capital L liberty, or to and you know, this happens as well to, to make it more proof of the need for slavery and slavery being something that is an institution that makes sense. Or and I think this is you know one of the one of the contributions of my book to say okay slavery is a problematic institution there's better and worse ways to do it and the french way is obviously not working that well maybe the west indian way creates this sort of problem and rather that leading to sort of an impetus towards getting rid of slavery at home it's it's a way of saying as long as it's done in some sort of american way uh, with with various sure, protections sure. it's
1: like it, the reform it, it, of the reform of slavery
0: it can be tamed in some sense, Yes, right. but that's not universal. And that's, that's in it, that's an idea that's in its germination, uh, you know, it's in its infancy, even in America. It's when I think it's gonna become a, uh, you know, over time, a, a real keeper <laughs> uh, among American pro-slavery ideologues, uh, that, that this is a safe way. It's an, in, it's even a humane way to, to deal with this problem. But there's plenty of Americans who look at this and say, look what's happening in this island, uh, in this colony, uh, in this place. Um, we need to we need to get out while the gettings still good here.
1: What is the uh, relationship between uh, San Domingo and Philadelphia you talk your your book is based on a lot of exchange that's happening uh, with merchant ships information that's coming in trade ideas and then people people are coming they're fleeing from the island and coming to Philadelphia they're, they're, yeah. sometimes they're bringing their slaves with them.
0: Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Yeah. Well, no, the the, the relationship we have to remember, this is, you know, the age of sail. This is before the telegraph. The telegraph is a really big change. It's not part of my book at all, but it's a big shift from the context I'm talking about, because with the telegraph, you can have communication between places that are disparate and far away from each other without a human body moving between those two places. But before that, for one place that's far away from another place to know about each other, some person has to move between those two places. And to be sure, there's some travelers and, and tourists who do that kind of thing. And then, and, and that's one way that different peoples know about other places. But the place, the reason most people move across any sizable difference, distance is to do business, is commerce. Uh, and Saint-Domingue is, uh, it's, I don't know how, what the great analogy would be. It's, it's like the Silicon Valley of the 18th century it is a source of immense wealth, as I, as I hinted at already. Um, it is a place that is, uh you know, that that if you're going to um do business, especially as an American in the post-revolutionary context where some portions of the British West Indies have been shut out to you uh in a punitive way, um, it's it's a gold mine. It's a gold mine. It is the way that among other places, but principally Sandomang, is the way that Americans escape the post American Revolution depression that they were suffering from, uh because uh, they do so much business there. Um, I, I did a, a little bit of work to try to figure this out and quantify it. And if you look at all of the arrivals to Philadelphia, which is the biggest and busiest American port, all the arrivals there are from any foreign port anywhere in the world. And you compare that to arrivals from any Domingan port. The proportion over the period I'm looking at is it averages about 20%. So 20% of all arrivals from anywhere in the world come from this little sliver, this eastern third of the island of Hispaniola, that is San Domingue. Um, and, and in certain years, it's over that. You know, in, in 1796, it approaches 34%. So it's 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 a good thing to remember. Uh, so so for all these reasons, and because of that density of contact, it's thousands and thousands of voyages, manned by many thousands of of mariners and captains and cargoes these merchants sort of junior merchants who would come to, to take test markets and try to make sales there's people who are going to know all about this place um, because they're they're traveling to it and then they're gonna take that news because this place is so important commercially because it's having all this this tumult and and, and meaningful discussion uh, and, and uh, disruptions uh, taking place and they're gonna tell newspaper editors you know a, a go-to um, thing for newspaper or procedure for newspaper editors was to 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 inhabit the wharves of whatever port city they lived in meeting the merchant ships as they came in to hear what mariners had seen right in addition to grabbing letters that mariners were bringing for publication or for uh, transmittal and printed stuff or newspapers that came from foreign places and these newspapers this is you know in a different era of american journalism they wouldn't necessarily be you know synthesizing and writing a report up in in any sense. They'd be simply cutting and pasting or reprinting uh, this information under the heading St. Domingo (laughs) or wherever it was from. So, uh, you know, one of the things I try to show in the book is how these these merchant vessels are one way information comes. And then they get into these newspaper vessels and uh, get spread out across the Atlantic seaboard in North America. And through that, they then enter a sort of more figurative vessel of the American political discourse as all these issues are being discussed and, and uh, argued about and fought passionately over. Uh, Sandemang is right there as part of the, the, the matter that that fight is being taken through.
1: You also talk about, in your book, about the print culture of the newspaper business. I mean, it was huge in Philadelphia. Yes. How big was Philadelphia and how many newspapers there were there? Because you do talk about it. Tell, tell the uh, audience
0: the, about that. It's the absolute center uh, in, in many senses of American uh, political and cultural life. It's the national capital. It is the uh, commercial capital. It's the, it's the state capital and, and uh, the local center. And it's also a siphoning sort of a, a mart for American mid-Atlantic uh, grains, uh, corn and wheat, to, to be go and to be exported out principally into the Caribbean. Um so it, it is a, you know, it, commercially, just the way San commercially was a center, it is a center for American life. Um, therefore, both places too are cultural centers. Uh, San Domingue, uh, before the the, the the violence and tumult of the revolutionary events, has the among the hemisphere's biggest cities, most vibrant cities, places where you know uh, European cultural. Uh, are, Things will be on exhibit for the first time, the best plays, the, the newest fashions, uh, scientific observations we made there and transmitted to Europe and to Philadelphia, you know, where Benjamin Franklin will take them up or the American Philosophical Society will take them up and, and publish them uh, just the same way that Philadelphia was uh, a center in those ways, too. So there's, there's a lot of cross uh, pollination of ideas and people um, that is only accelerated when this, uh, you know, this, this these series of disruptions starts happening.
1: So ideas are coming into Philadelphia. They're being published in these as vibrant uh, newspaper business, (laughs) uh, print culture, but also people are coming. I thought that was interesting, okay? The colonials who are trying to escape, the white colonials who are trying to escape the violence. Mm -hmm. Uh, They fear for slave insurrection. They're fearing for the colored population. You had just mentioned before the Spanish are in there too, Mm-hmm. So I mean, it's lots of people yep. are playing into yep. this. So can you talk a little bit about the people who actually came into Philadelphia? And I was very interested in the ones who brought their slaves. Yes. And how well, that sort of met with Afri- free African-Americans in Philadelphia mm-hmm. and the, the, the anti-slavery and abolition debates that were going on in Philadelphia. And you've got people coming in, bringing sla- their slaves with right. them. I mean, this is a
0: – well. A You're exactly right. of, it's an interesting set of, set of events to come together. And, and because of the, the, the anti-slavery sort of ethos that you just referenced in Philadelphia, more people go elsewhere. And those who land in Philadelphia without, um, you know, without, because they couldn't control where they were landing various moments, trying to get out there, leave as, as soon as they can, if they have slaves with them. Because, um, after uh, 1788, you have six months after arriving with an enslaved person, and that, before that person is declared to be free. Uh, So more uh, more of these refugees will will try to point themselves elsewhere to to Norfolk, to to New York City, uh, to Baltimore. uh, And that's where they'll stay. Um, But, yes, a significant chunk of them do land in Philadelphia as well. Um, The the, the refugees tend to go. I mean, there's a steady drain after 1791, after the initial slave insurrections. But again, we have to remember that they don't have the benefit of our hindsight. They don't know that this is the beginning of a, of a cataclysmic end to slavery on the island. Uh, and, and we also have to remember that those slave insurrections are localized. They're in certain regions of Sandomang and not in all of them. So it's not always clear for these people that they're leaving forever or that, um, you know, that they're, they're escaping a, you know, an oncoming end of a, a, of a plantation society. Um, but they do leave in, in some numbers at that point, 1791, and then an immense number, about 10,000 leave. Uh, in 1793, after those events uh, that I referenced before with the, the liberating of, of slaves in the northern city of Capron, uh you know, that then evolves to become the emancipatory French policy in 1794. That's a big flotilla of refugees who who bump their way up the coast, dropping people off. Um, and, um, you know, people are, are fleeing. Uh, another large number end up going to Cuba later in the decade. And those people uh, after 182, uh, go to Louisiana, which is not yet an American territory, um, but as you know, will become. Um, so there's another kind of influx. But there's also people who go back. Um, again, there's moment, there's ebbs and flow to this violence. We tend to think of it as one sort of continual cataclysmic series of events, but it is like anything else. War and, uh, and, di- and chaos are not universal. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it, Americans, in fact, are constantly trying to read the tea leaves to decide when different places are more or less safe to return to for these boom times to resume. Um, so, yeah, th- th- that's that's how that works.
1: Okay, Um How how did African-Americans, free African-Americans of Philadelphia, responding to this?
0: Fascinatedly. Uh, You know, the the evidence uh, is harder to find. There's fewer um, literary sources, uh, and there's more anecdotal sources. There's more sources, uh, people of color in America, being observed by those who write things down. And so there's another layer of interpretive kind of work to be done to figure things out. But I'm I'm quite convinced that the African-American population in Philadelphia, which is increasingly a predominantly free population of color, though there's still slaves that endure there, but also enslaved people in in Virginia and South Carolina are getting word of what's going on and are uh, making something of it, to be sure. Um, The Philadelphian population, which after all is um, has found itself and has come to a place where a certain kind of emancipation and free life is possible, um, has to be very careful about how they treat these events and how they relate them to their own realities. Um, From best we can tell, leaders in the black American community um, are faintly interested in holding up the violence in Saint-Domingue and saying, look, look at the justice of a a, a vengeful God. Uh, So usually religious leaders as well. Uh, Look at the dangers of continuing to flout uh, the, the biblical precept that God made of one blood, all men. Um, you know, so let's ensure that this is something that should be, um, should be hearkened to and, and made sense of in that sense. Um, but it's, it's dangerous to hold up too much of a warning, (laughs) you know, to say this is something that you should look out for among that population because they are a minority and they are besieged. Even though they're in this, this, uh, you know, relatively safe and safer place, they are not uh, without their struggles.
1: And they don't want to be called a French Negro.
0: Right. Right. Yeah.
1: So talk about the connotations of that of that term.
0: Sure. Uh,
1: that was you could be labeled with that. And that was not going to help their cause trying to get persuade white Americans to let African-Americans have equality.
0: Right. Certainly after a certain point, it's it's it becomes a, um, a, a an entirely negative uh, approbation or, or, or name altogether. Um But earlier on, there's more nuance to it, Uh, and there are some degrees of understanding and even acceptance to the notion that a French Negro is something not entirely negative. Um, You know, initially, French Negro seems to connote uh, a sense of um, insurgent slaves who are, um, and therefore, who may either be signs of the injustice of slavery or the necessity of slavery, depending on your understanding of that. um, But who are, you know, sort of into the winds, who, who, who could spread out and infect a plantation society elsewhere. Um, again, but that could be seen as a natural sort of uh, freedom-loving thing done by mankind when oppressed, or as a, a, a scary, nefarious undercutting of planter authority. Once the French have adopted this policy of emancipation, those Americans, white, and, and to some degree black as well, I would guess, um, who see the French Revolution as, again, this kind of Revolutionary global force of republicanism acting against tyranny everywhere in its, all its forms. There are some people in, in American political discourse who look at French Negroes and say, "Yes, that is a, that is a force for good. Um, they are valiant soldiers fighting against aristocratic and, and royalist um, bad guys." Um, few are those who will say, and therefore it's okay if they're here with us too, <laughs> right? Uh, though there are some, you know. Iconoclastic voices that do say things like that, who say things like, look at the, look at the, the Plan du Nord, this famous place in Saint-Domingue where, where the violence really begins for the insurgent slaves. That is nothing more than what Lexington and Concord was in 1775. That is nothing more than mankind, another example of mankind striving to become free. And so the extent of French Negro is an American Negro, right? Or, or is, is, is an American, right? So there are, there, one of the things I think the book uh, I like to think the book makes evident is that there's more fluidity. There's more, uh, more sort of ideas up for grabs in this, uh, cacophonous and chaotic set of events, uh, than people tend to, um, tend, tend to know. By the end of my story, French Negro is unambiguously a scary thing if you're a, a white, uh, person, uh, who's thinking about politics. There's no way to feasibly, I think, say is a good thing. You know, it, it's been reduced to a metonym for black violence. And that's my point. It's been a reduction. It's been a constriction of a, of a wider array of possible meanings that were on display much earlier on.
1: Well, you just hit on something. It has to do with uh, Americans are looking at the revolution or the insurgency or whatever you want to call it, the tumult of St. Domingue, and they're, uh, Using it, it's a way for them to try to understand their own American revolution. And also, this is a new republic, okay? It's very new. It's a baby republic, and they're yep. still trying to figure out who are we, what happened, what did we just do? And you've got these faction, we have republicanism and federalism, and they're, you know, vying for the future of the country. And this is happening when the nation is really forming its. Sort of self-awareness of who, who, what America is or is to be. So I want you to talk a little bit about that because I thought that it was really interesting because it was a very critical moment. It wasn't like America had been around for a hundred years. No. We're still Absolutely. trying to figure it out.
0: Absolutely. Things were up for grabs. Uh, it's, this, it's this dangerous combo in people's minds um, of, uh, you know, as you just said, uh, sort of the, the, the meaning, the fundamental essence of what this new revolutionary Republican polity was going to mean and be and how it was going to act and, and what it was going to look like and how it was going to work and the sense that there was only one answer to that. And so that if you saw people who opposed you or seemed to be um, acting in ways that you, uh, you, you didn't judge to be part of what you thought as the meaning of the American Revolution and the polity that it was, it had produced. They were not just, you know, uh, people espousing a different opinion. They were vital enemies to the revolution. They were, you know, um, in some degrees, uh, you know, traitors. Um, so this is not a moment when political parties accept each other as rivals for power. They, they see each other as dire enemies uh, and as signs that, in fact, there are someone trying to undercut the meaning of the, the recent revolution and undo it to some degree. So, um, you know, th- there's no provision in the American Constitution. There's no sense among the so-called founders that parties is, are something that is ex- acceptable or that will naturally happen uh, in this new polity. So when divisions do crop up in the 1790s, this is why the 1790s are so vital and so fascinating, I think. Uh, After 1793, certainly after 1795, and you have groups of people organizing to defeat each other in this political combat, it's immensely disruptive and and scary and upsetting to people. Um, And it it accounts for the passion of their fights. So the fact that, A, they've got an example of a society seemingly falling apart that they're so familiar with in their viewpoint is one source of Saint-Domingue's weight, but two that it's it's involves a lot of the same issues that they believe themselves to be involved in: struggles over the nature of a republic, struggles over the the question of the extents of human equality, uh, a participation as citizenship, um, uh, you know, in a more general sense of a republic, struggle against a global uh, aristocracy or a global monarchical, monarchical power. Um, The question that we started with, the question of the connections between republics everywhere, should we now be, um, you know, on the side of those French Republicans, even though they just emancipated slaves? It's a question. And some Americans answer yes. Um, This is a moment when the French, uh, as mentioned before, are are contemplating sort of a global fight, um, acting on it to some degree against forces of monarchy. They are themselves besieged by monarchical forces in Europe. Um, and then have some successes against them. Uh, a famous French ambassador named Citizen Genet, um, your, your listeners have probably have heard of him, uh, lands in um, <clears throat> the United States and begins to arm Americans, and they are quite happy to go along with it, against the British, uh, maybe against the Spanish. There's a question of whether there's going to be an exhibition, ex, uh, that's the word, um, a fight against uh, the Spanish in Kentucky and Tennessee, uh, an expedition, an um, expedition. Certainly, privateers that are being armed and sent out against British shipping in the Caribbean. Um, Washington and that administ- administration don't, don't like this. They, they, this is when the Proclamation of Neutrality gets issued. But it's a real question about whether you know whether uh, he's going to be able to sustain that.
1: Um, I mean, there's also an argument going on or a debate going on uh, all over uh, about monarchs. Whether they should be retained or eliminated, and people are—I mean, nobody's ever tried this before, you know—having having, uh, having uh, nations without monarchs. And mm-hmm. there's also the accusation from you know from Republicans and the Federalists are really monarchs if they really want to establish a monarchy. And so the monarch—the the data where the monarchy is all in there too.
0: Absolutely.
1: So, yes. so that we all be—we're all going to be slaves.
0: Well, and or, 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 you know, those who, uh, you know, the question is whether, you know, living in a monarchical society is is a constraint of liberty or actually the best preservation of liberty. And I, that's the more conservative perspective, the the Edmund Burke kind of version is that, you know, uh, everyone is equal in their inequality beneath the monarch because of the way that British monarchy has evolved uh, through this, again, kind of Republican framework. Um that preserves individual liberties through their all-common subjecthood, right? The emergent Democratic Republicans uh, in, in the United States, the, the French Republicans in Paris, you know, say that is, you know, a falsehood that, you know, in fact, that is that is slavery, as you suggest, and, and um, you know, it needs to be fought against. Um, but my point is that, you know, that that Citizen Genet guy is running around the United States, causing all the trouble he causes in American politics. His Direct counterparts are operating in Saint Domingue. Uh, you know, people in the same regime, from the same sort of perspective, are are you know doing things like freeing slaves or or offering slaves uh, French uh, citizenship and, and roles in the army. And Americans are seeing them in the same lens and seeing that as the same sort of project. And indeed, it was. They were. They, you know, the, the ministers were talking to each other. The the, the French ministers in Saint Domingue were publishing things for American audiences to read, so they understand what. They wanted them to understand about what was going on. Janae was trying to feed these colonies, um, make sure that the British could be fought back. So, uh, you know, Americans aren't wrong. To see it all is, is pretty interrelated.
1: So uh, I know you must, your book is is focused on Philadelphia, but I was yeah. just wondering, and you do talk a little bit about this. I'm wondering about uh, for you to talk a little bit about how the southern plantation owners uh, in America were seeing this.
0: Sure um i made a conscious decision not to um, not to focus there i wanted to focus um, well because a lot of some of the literature that exists on this already has already focused in that direction though mostly in the 19th century where the story is my endpoint the story is that that reduced meaning of sandemang that, that the function of that horrific macabre uh, violent image among black and white audiences, mostly in the South, uh, that's what they're looking at in, in the books I'm thinking about. Uh, and I saw more fluidity and more interest and more political vitality by looking at the place I did, Philadelphia. Because and it has to do with the print culture question you asked before, uh, because Philadelphia is such a center in the ways I described it, it also has this, you know, what is it's indisputably the most vibrant newspaper uh, culture uh, in the young republic. Uh, it is a place where once news arrives in Philadelphia, it blasts out across the eastern seaboard in a way that no other port or, and collection of newspapers can do. Uh, it has a national readership in the way other ports only have regional readerships. Uh, and given that the way the news moved through clipping and, and reprinting, you know, after 1792, there's a Post Office Act that allows newspapers to move through the mail for free of charge. Um, and within... Uh, a very short amount of time, uh, the vast bulk of American mail is newspapers moving free between editors for them to snip and clip and, and reprint stuff. Didn't
1: and you de- think... Oh, yeah,
0: th- go ahead.
1: I think you say in your book that uh, newspaper editors were often the the postman?
0: Yes, postmasters, yeah.
1: Postmasters? Yeah. Okay. So there was... Yeah,
0: so, was uh, yeah, so information a- moves through these things. You know, that's that. this is that paper vessel I was talking about before. And, and um, so... In, by by following that news, I'm able to avoid the kind of uh, the, the, the more predominant reaction among uh, planters, which was horror and uh, and resistance and uh, and deep deep worry, which is there too. And I, you know, it's there in Philadelphia too. Their 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 ideas coming to Philadelphia and are also spread out, but this other stuff is as well. And so I got a, a wider picture. Um, there's also we have to remember, uh, you know, south of Baltimore. Uh, the next next big city of any size is Charleston, <laughs> you know, and Savannah's there, too, but it's pretty small. Uh, and those two cities do have newspapers, but um, they don't uh, have the same kind of reach. Uh, these kinds of travel accounts that describe traveling between, you know, you talk about endless stretches of uninhabited land, uh, as they think of it, or very sparsely inhabited land. Um, so, uh, you know, even though Charleston and Savannah are much closer Geographically to Saint Domingue, to this seat of action, the news they get is usually later. At least that, that which makes it into newspapers. You know, th- this 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 way information moves in the age of sail actually bends geography in a certain sense, making Philadelphia closer to San Domingue than places that were physically closer to it.
1: Right. One thing that uh, I get from your book is it's the, I get the sense that we haven't paid enough attention to to this to this San Domingo and the Haitian Revolution, and it's and it's influ- the ideas that it came out of that that shaped the future of the nation.
0: Yeah,
1: yeah. I- ha- tell me, talk to, uh, talk a little bit about about the scholarship part of this. And I, I love the I love the fact that your your book is you know situated within an Atlantic context, and, and it it kind of breaks this sort of idea that it America was the United States was very exceptional, and and it just connects it to so many bigger, broader things. I, I love that. So can you talk a little bit about where you think the scholarship is on this and wh- how much, which, much more needs to be done, which I think a lot more needs to be done?
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, that's certainly you just described the waters I, I hope to be swimming in very well. I mean, Haiti and the Haitian Revolution has experienced over the past 10 years or so uh, a a renaissance, a resurgence of interest uh, among scholars. uh, And it's mostly now being recovered uh, as probably the most radical of the revolutions of the so-called era of Atlantic revolutions. Uh, By contrast, you know, the big studies. The land breaking and uh, 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 you know, sort of wonderful studies uh, earlier. Uh, on, I'm thinking of R.R. Palmer's "The Age of the Democratic Revolution," a really influential two-volume study uh, in the late 50s, early 60s. Uh, won the Bancroft Prize. Wonderful. You know, uh, came out of Princeton. Um, doesn't uh, mention Haiti once. It's not even in the index. Wow. Um, just <laughs> not there. Um, and so there is a sea change now in the way we think about revolutions. Their interconnectedness. I mean, Palmer was certainly doing a lot of interconnected thinking about what the relationship between revolutions, but the things that he was noticing about revolutions, the ways he was marking connection, didn't, couldn't uh, include the the kinds of things that make uh, the Haitian revolution um, useful to talk about, or it wasn't useful to him. So we're thinking about revolution differently now. Um, We're thinking about it not just as a product of ideas, but also as a product of material culture and, and material structures. Um, and we're measuring its intents, its directions, uh, and its therefore its radical change, that, or the kinds of changes that get produced in different ways. Um, the fact that this series of events uh, leads to an independent polity, a second independent polity in the Western Hemisphere, in which citizenship is predicated on blackness, in which uh, whiteness eliminates one from property ownership, uh, you know, it's, it's undeniably, and, and so to people, you know, these days, a sort of unavoidably, uh, incredibly radical moment, and one that, of course, people knew about and talked about, and, and impacted the way they thought about their own doings and goings on.
1: Because you know, Haiti is uh, the first self-emancipation of enslaved people. Is that not correct? Right? Uh,
0: yeah. Yes, it is.
1: So, and so, when we're talking about the age of democratic revolutions, we're usually thinking about. Uh, white middle-class people, bourgeois people rising up against monarch.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And yeah, we're thinking about, you know, in the classic thing, we're thinking about the, 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 the development, the rise and the spread of a notion, say popular sovereignty, that, that, that the location of a nation's sovereignty can be other than uh, it, it, its monarch, but in fact it stands above its monarch or its government altogether and it comes from its people. And those people have some role in, uh, picking and and, 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 and running its government and, and all the things that come out of that. Sandemang, you know, it's, it's reasonable to not be included in that story, but it's not that reasonable. Uh, you have to include, A, all the people. <laughs> you have to think about the enslaved, uh, and their desires. You have to think about, uh, governance that doesn't necessarily look like a republic, uh, Per se, the, the initial Haitian states aren't republics. Uh, in fact, there's a civil war, and one of the Haitian states becomes a monarchy. But there is, you know, is a fundamental, although complicated, commitment to human freedom that underlies these things, uh, these these new polities. Uh, that you know, I think, to my mind, makes it unavoidably part of the story. Um, beyond that, though, even if you don't want to talk about how this age fits together or doesn't fit together, um, the fact that my actors, the people I'm really interested in, Americans, knew about this thing and were thinking about this, these events. And it, those thoughts and that knowledge was constitutive and, and even informative to their own thoughts about what their revolution meant. I think makes it, you know, you can't leave it out uh, from the, from the, uh, even a more sort of nationally lined story. My story is a story about the United States, principally. It's a story about the United States and taking cognizance its its wider connections and understandings of the world around it. Um, that's a shift, too. Uh, that's a shift towards understanding revolutions as not being done in one particular moment, but as being fluid and and up for grabs politically, even if, at the moment, they're putatively over.
1: Yeah, it's almost like in the uh, 1790s, uh, the United States was still in a revolutionary period.
0: Of course, I certainly it, would see it so.
1: Right. it's still uh, not settled exactly what America was to be. And sure. And Haiti... Uh, sort of intervenes in in that. So what do you think, uh, in terms of as historians look at this period, what do you think the meaning of uh, the Haitian Revolution is for us today and and where should we be considering it?
0: Well, I think, you know, American audiences, modern audiences, um, tend to, when they think about Haiti at all, um, tend to think of it as a, Marginal place in some sense an impoverished place a place where horrible things take place or natural disasters strike when natural disasters that cause a certain kind of damage in other places happen in, in Haiti they, they cause an immense more damage and they lead to cholera um, and, and and epidemics and and mass suffering um, and, and places of political tumult and 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 then like um, We need to remember that uh, a, the period I'm looking at, things are entirely different. That this is the most modern, progressive, in some ways, uh, central place on the planet, and at least in the Atlantic, um, that everyone, of course, knows about it. Everyone thinks about it and talks about it all the time, uh, and is involved in it and, and interested in it in a certain visceral way, um, to the extent that we, you know, we can't appreciate. And that makes us begin to think about. And here's where I'm leaving my area of expertise, but I have some ideas. Um, about the reasons why Saint-Domingue and then Haiti, uh, become this more marginal presence, uh, and yet we can't forget this important, important history that this place has. Um, this really, you know, sort of, uh, vital part, portion of human history, I think, that took place in the Haitian Revolutionary era.
1: Now, the United States did not recognize Haiti as a independent nation till like 18- 18. Sixty-five or something, eighteen sixty.
0: Sixty-three.
1: Sixty-three. Why is yeah? Why is that?
0: Well, I mean, uh, again, you, there's there's some of my colleagues who more better equipped to to, to give you the specifics of it, but it, you know, it has to do with uh, my endpoint, um, which is one in which the, the meanings of Haiti are, are constrained uh, and, and its utility as a place to talk about divisive issues like slavery. Uh, are, are eliminated right uh, it becomes a place uh, that that only has a single meaning a place that means uh, sort of uh, especially among white audiences but not only a place of black violence and horror and and sort of a topsy-turvy society where things are, are wrong right um, it doesn't become useful in American political discourse again until the Civil War right when when southern uh, representatives are, are no longer part of the National Council and um some of the uh, Republican groups, uh, factions of the Republican Party, are are interested in, in bringing it back into this way and and recognizing it as a, as an institution as a, as a, as a sovereign nation. Um, so yeah, I, I, to put it in my story, you know, it, it's a resumption of its relevance as part of contemporary debates that we you know, that you see in, in the 1860s that had ceased after 188 or so.
1: So basically, the the. Uh, the people uh, in America who saw the Haitian uh, situation as wholly a negative thing won.
0: Uh, for a time, Interpre- yeah.
1: It turns or the interpretation.
0: Yeah, yeah. No, I, I mean even so. If you if you do a, you can do sort of hunts uh, through databases and online stuff now to look for Saint Domingo in in 19th century uh, language and discourse, and you'll find it. People still talk about Saint Domingo, but it is it almost is always appended as the horrors of <laughs> saint domingo it is almost always uh, at least on uh, you know sort of pro-slavery southern su- sla- uh, southern pro-slavery audiences it's it's seen as this scary uh it's described in this way of, of criticizing uh interference with slavery even among african american audiences uh they're unable to avoid or evade this that that meaning uh, it becomes purely a way to articulate rage and 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 resistance
1: so it makes the abolitionist cause uh, a little di- more difficult to uh, persuade people that we can free the slaves and it's going to be okay. Be- yes.
0: Because yes. People because to, people
1: yeah. can point to Haiti and go, oh, you wanted to be like Haiti, and you could also say, well, we're trying to avoid Haiti well, by yeah. being proactive, right?
0: Yeah. You know, Latter-day abolitionists do talk about, hey, talk about the nobility of Toussaint Louverture, and talk about it. it Sort of becomes a stock picture. And yeah, it's it's actually a a holdover of an earlier vein, uh, the one I mentioned before, of of talking about the injustice of slavery as what produces um, slave violence, and therefore something there's something acceptable about that kind of slave violence. That thread does endure into the the Garrisonian abolitionist page uh, feel as well um but as you say that's it, it's it's much easier to say, to point at that and say but look at the violence and look at the place that it's become and all sorts of you know
1: this is what uh, happens art. with with black people rule
0: right and you, they could you know that, that that that's the sort of line they could make uh, make it into yeah. this simply this savage uh atavistic kind of uh land um when in fact even at that moment it's a very interesting place uh, and a vibrant place a besieged place a place that has to uh, constantly worry about being reinvaded, and, and and a place that whose contacts with the world are increasingly circumscribed, um, uh, and a place that's being uh, you know that various being, uh, natural resources are being extracted from it, and and these sorts of things that make it besieged in another sense. But it's it's you know it's, it, well it's a human place. It's got lots of uh, interesting and uh, wonderful things going on in it.
1: Okay, so I'm gonna have a, just a little final question for you here. What would you like your reader to take away from your book? What have you not been able to say in our time together that you would like to say?
0: Um, well, and you've given me a chance to say a lot, so I do appreciate it. I mean, I, I, in addition to that, just cognizance of Haiti as a place uh, that's central and interesting and and, and, and is not simply uh, something that falls along our modern assumptions, uh, I, I would point, to to the things we've hinted at, but uh, you know, I think are important from the book. Uh, the point that American political culture, probably anyone's political culture, are, are are fluid things. They are not set in stone. Uh, the meanings of a revolution, the 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 results of um, you know a movement, they're not fait accompli. They are things that are hashed out in politics, and not just by leaders, but also by uh, you know middling sorts and lower sorts. They are are fluid, and, and therefore revolutions are a process. Um, and therefore, uh, you know, when you a story like i've tried to do here where there's more than one revolution at hand uh you see the ways in which not all revolutions are created equal right uh the the, the meaning of the haitian revolution as i just mentioned before is one that had to be argued for uh when in fact contemporaries to it in america to understood it as densely interrelated with their own uh, it got lost that's a big loss in fact that it gets lost to history um until pretty recently when it's been discovered to be you know this really intricate and and interesting and impactful and important series of events. So there's, you know, power works in in societies at the time to to, to, to sort of mediate how things go. It also works in history to determine what's there for us to talk about and how we can conceptualize even uh, the movements that we're trying to analyze. Um, Above all, that, that points to the need to not just think about the nation state, but to think about the way things are connected across the world.
1: Okay, thank you, Alex.
0: Thank you very much. Thank Appreciate you
1: for your to our listeners tuning in to another edition of New Books in American Studies. It would be a pleasure to hear from you. You can reach me through my website at www.lillianbarger.com. This is your host, Lillian Barger.